Aaron Akulis here with the Peace on Drugs podcast. Intro and outro music provided by Twiggy Branches. Check them out on all streaming services. Peace Nicks, I'm so excited. Getting to interview authors of books I've read and enjoyed was one of the first things I looked forward to doing this podcast. We started the podcast in March of 2021, and now this last episode of 2021, because we're taking one week off for the holidays, is author of the book, The Weight of Air, David Poses. So not only are we ending this year on a high note with our first author guest, we will also be kicking off the new year with our second author guest, Carlin Zwarnstein, who wrote the book, on opium. It was great talking with David as we talked about his book and his views on rehab and addiction. You want a little taste of this podcast? I'll give you a little taste. And I mean, the idea that, that we're going to, if we legalize and regulate that, we're just going to say, all right, meth's now available at Walgreens, go get some. It's not going to be like that. We have we have a way to regulate it safely. And people that that that's their drug that they they need it helps them out they can go talk to a doctor and it's between them I and their totally doctor um, um sorry we should have drugs in drugstores the way that we have uh alcohol in in liquor stores i mean you, you mean over the counter yeah i mean I, I i don't i don't see why you can walk into i mean you know look um my wife likes uh you know wine and, and champagne every now and again we have people over who who drink sometimes, so I go to the liquor store. I could buy all kinds of booze, no problem, that is, you know, lethal amounts of anything, um, you know, but I can't walk into the drug equivalent of that. Like, why, why not? I mean, really, why wouldn't we do that? Heroin on the shelves. I love it. After considering this, I like the idea of removing the doctor and treating the opium user as patient you know, as sick, stigmatized. We don't treat people who drink as diseased, some, but not the social drinks after work person. I think we should have a separate store for opiates, which is what I believe David was saying. The way places like Colorado sell cannabis and places like Rhode Island handle alcohol. You can't buy any alcohol at the grocery store in Rhode Island, but it's easy to get. You can get it at a restaurant or a package store which is usually a little store right beside the grocery store. This makes it easier to keep out of the hands of children and makes the purchase of the purchase less of an impulse purchase. But David's right. If an adult chooses to do heroin over alcohol, then that's that person's right to make that decision for themselves. You know, I think adults should have the right to decide which way they choose to live and experience their own consciousness. Now, selling this idea to a heavily propagandized American voting population will not be easy. But we're trying. That's what this podcast is all about. Changing people's minds, getting people to see the actual reality as it is. All right, Peace Nicks, let's dive in. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs are menacing our society. What are your thoughts on the drug problem? So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. drugs. This is really cool having you on this podcast, and thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it's great to be here. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so I I finished your book uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Great book. Great work. Thank you. And uh, 
really uh, powerful story. Um, we're going to get into that, but I wanted to start with uh, with your love for Radiohead. Um, <laughs> yes. Are okay. you still you still still big into Radiohead? I'm huge into Radiohead, and I'm not getting enough Radiohead questions, so I'm thrilled that you're asking that first. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, they've become my favorite band. Actually, uh, I've always loved OK Computer and um, the Bends. Yeah, but after OK Computer, I, I couldn't get into Kid A and I didn't get into anything else until the 2020 shutdown. I, I Well, the 20, 2020 shutdown, I, I got in Moonshaped Pool. Okay. And then I went backwards. It was one album after another. And, and Kid A, I kept going back to and kept trying and I didn't like it. But mm-hmm. uh, in your book, you said the best music doesn't reveal itself on its first listen. You know, But once you hear it, you'll never unhear it. And Kid yeah. A clicked one day. Boom. And yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, um, I heard Kid A, uh, I, I took my wife to Tower Records um, at midnight on the day it came out so that we could be the first people to have it. Um, and I was really uh, like so happy to have it, but kind of horrified by the sound, you know, I, it, yeah. was, it was so unusual. Um, and like, I, I, I loved it but I hated it. And it took a couple of many listens before I was like, holy shit, this is like one of the most brilliant albums I've ever heard in my life. It's not okay computer, but yeah. it's really you know, quite extraordinary. So anyway, um, yeah. What, uh, what, what do you like besides uh, Moonshaped Pool and, and the aforementioned? Like in, in that, you know, between um, today. In Rainbows is becoming my favorite. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, it's so good. And I, uh, oh, I just got Kid A Amnesiac, their new vinyl release. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. My vinyl player has been broken, so I haven't listened to it till till last night. I was like, finally got it fixed, and I put it on and listened to it. And of course, you know, I already loved Kid A now, but it was it's really great. All the, the B side stuff is really cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I I have so much uh, Radiohead on a hard drive, like all these bootlegs and whatever. But uh, anyway, we can talk about that some other time, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I just got a Radiohead live vinyl, but I. I wrapped it and put it under my tree for my wife and I. I was like, I'm not going to just open it up now. But um, so, yeah, I was going to ask you if OK Computer, you still, is that still the, you think, because you, you were going to impart some valuable life lessons to your daughter. And you said one of those lessons was OK Computer is the best album ever recorded. Is that still your opinion? Um, it, it really is. I mean, you know, all these years later, uh, I, it's my it's my favorite album. I don't listen to it. Uh, you know, like all day, every day, like I did um, when it came out. But, you know, when I look at my, um, I'm an Apple Music person. So, you know, it tracks like what you listen to most. Mm-hmm. And every year um, when you go through like, you know, your, your they give you your list of uh, top played songs or whatever, something from, there's always like, you know, okay, computer in some order uh, in the top, you know, 20 basically. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm very loyal. <laughs> That's very cool. So, um, yeah, so I, as soon as I was reading your book, I was like, this is the first thing I want to bring up. But um, I guess we should, especially for my listeners who aren't, some of them might not be Radiohead fans, we'll uh, move what? on to, <laughs> it's possible. I found out my bass player didn't like Radiohead one year. And oh, my a, God, really? Uh, You're, that, that's, that's not okay. We, we argued about it for a long time. I, I think I got him to come around a little bit. But um, <laughs> um, anyway, uh yeah, I want to get into the um, what, to your book, because, you know, my podcast is a, the piece on drugs. It's mostly it's about the drug war, but it's also about addiction. And, and I just did an opioid crisis special 
And every time I read something, I hadn't read your book before I released that special. And I just read Carolyn uh, Zornstein's book on opium. Okay. And um, she's going to be on it ne- on the podcast next week. Okay. And every time I read a book, I just, I, I, I learn new things, uh, the things that I would have changed in my opioid special, even, and I, I messaged her about this, you know, even though I'm already on the side of legalization, regulation, uh, get, getting opiate addicts, heroin addicts, access to heroin, I still always thought the best um, strategy is still sobriety if it po- if if that can be possible. But I'm learning that for some people it's not possible, and that and it's it's they're going to need something to medicate, and yeah. and I don't see what's the big problem with that. You know, like what? Uh, I I totally agree. I mean, you know, I I think um, we in our like there's so many kind of bullshit thoughts that are baked into our collective conscious. I mean, you know, we, we know you don't have to have tried, you know, uh, cocaine and LSD to know that they're very different from, you know, alcohol and pot, like every type of substance affects our neural pathways differently. Um, but we have this idea, you know, and, and kind of this, the AAism of a drug is a drug is a drug. So, you know, we know that like nobody wakes up in the morning and starts guzzling down vodka and functions all day. Um, but there are millions of people all over the world who doctors uh, prescribe opioids far more powerful than heroin who not only can function on them, but need them specifically to function. So, you know, heroin destroys lives and uh, it's pure evil and all like that, but, you know, somehow um, Dilaudid and and so forth uh, improve lives. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I, I think, um, you know, there's definitely something to be said for, um, pain. And if you can, uh, I mean, look, I would love to not have to take something every day, but at this point, I mean, depression is a degenerative biological condition. Um, if I had some kind of, you know, chronic physical malady, I would, it would be, you know, very similar and opioids, um, you know, they work by flooding your brain with dopamine and serotonin and binding to your opiate receptors, uh, which regulate physical pain and, emotional well-being, which is, you know, emotional pain. So they, you know, when, whenever anybody says like, I, you know, how can you take heroin for depression? That doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, heroin works for depression the same way that heroin works for if your foot got chopped off, um, you know, and, and heroin is an opioid. So it's the same as Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocet, you know, I mean, I have this conversation with people all the time. Like, remember when your dentist prescribed uh, Vicodin after that root canal? Well, you know how heroin feels. It, it's like, um, you know, well, I've had beer, but I, I can't imagine what a, you know, scotch whiskey tastes like or feels like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this idea that, um, cause you're one of your counselors, Nancy, she said that she said heroin is pure evil and has no medical value. And, no, right. and to me, it's like, well, th- that's the most ridiculous statement, especially for somebody who's in the medical field or, or the recovery field, because we know that it has medical value. And actually most doctors would agree that opium is the most powerful medicine that the world has ever had for thousands of years. Well, maybe other than penicillin, but, you know, I think oh, yeah, an important true. distinction needs to be made about Nancy and most people in treatment, which is that, um, you know, Hazelden, it's different today than it was when I was there. But, um, you know, the when the locus of care is Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a non-medical operation, and, I, you know, I should probably have a little disclaimer here that, uh, you know, I, I would never discourage anybody from doing anything that works for them. Um, I know a lot of people who have, uh, you know, AA has, they, they credit AA with saving their lives, but this is not, um, you know, this is not science and medicine. I mean, they tell you explicitly to avoid, um, you know, medicine. So Nancy 
has no medical uh, credentials. You know, I mean, she's she's just telling me what she thinks. And um, addiction has been so siloed off from uh, science and medicine. You know, certainly as long as anyone who is alive has been alive. Um, you know, and and so we just kind of accept the idea that, like, uh, you know, in order to this is this is the only medical condition uh, where you know you've got medical experts without medical credentials, and they're pushing a cure that involves uh, prayer, um, you know, and 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 avoiding uh, science and medicine. I mean, you know, if an oncologist were to have said, um, you know, your cancer, the, the, uh, you got to just join a support group. That's gonna, you know, that that that's the answer. You stay away from that chemotherapy and surgery, though, because if you start to do that, you know, you're gonna die. Um, you know, I mean, that that's literally the the definition of quack medicine. Um, medical experts yes. without medical credentials pushing, um, you know, magical thinking cures. Yeah, I remember Doug Stanhope, the comedian, has a bit about that about the Gary Busey and the the show about uh, what was it? Well, the show was intervention, but he's like the end at the final end is just God. That like that's your medical advice. He's like, what other? He's like, even your most Christian zealous friends, if they if they went to the hospital and the doctor came out and said it looks like someone needs a higher power. That's not what they want to hear. No, it's exactly. And, you know, the thing that's so interesting about like doctors who, uh, you know, you, you go to medical school, they don't like drugs and addiction. Just because you're a doctor doesn't mean that you know everything about everything. You know, I mean, it's not taught for a very long time. I mean, you know, um, and so I, I've met plenty of doctors who just kind of accept the idea that like AA is the solution to addiction. Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, just something that we think without even really thinking about. It's the brand you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, for anything else, I mean, you know, it, 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 it would be preposterous. And, and people who are perfectly, you know, logical, rational people who would tell you, you know, if you went to the, the doctor for, you know, some obscure toenail fungus um, and they were like, yeah, you've got to just pray and join an anonymous support group. They'd be like, fuck you. Like, are you out of your mind? I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> that's malpractice lawsuits, <clears throat> excuse me, all day long. Um, you know, but with with this, it's just like, well, yeah, obviously, that's the only thing. We, you know, I mean, God hasn't been curing diseases since like the bubonic plague, but I guess He's good with this. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really frustrating. And um, my wife went through, you know, has some alcohol addiction problems, and we went to AA, and I went with her, and and it was very strange and cult-like, in my opinion. And again, though, like you said, if it works for people, I, I'm I totally for people going if that's what if it works for them. I have no cult. problem with it. But yeah, I it's. Mean, it's it, 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 it is a cult. I mean, you know, there are a lot of kind of, you know, sayings at like, uh, you know, um, your buprenorphine is replacing, you know, one addiction with another, AA is replacing one addiction with another. I mean, you know, there, there are AA chapters um, uh, around the country that are um, being sued for basically shaming somebody out of taking buprenorphine or Wellbutrin or Prozac, you know, antidepressants. Um, who stopped taking the medication that was keeping them alive and functional, uh, and, and these people committed suicide. I mean, there, there's a, um, a group in Syracuse, New York, that uh, this just happened with um, over the past couple of years. And I mean, it, it's horrifying that that's going on. Like, you know, and again, like I, I, I don't mean to judge anybody who takes that path. Like that's, that's totally fine. But like telling somebody, you know, you can't be taking Wellbutrin, you're not you know, completely clean, like while they're drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes yeah, um, is, is really just horrifying. Yeah, it is. I, I just talked to an artist friend of mine the other day and he was saying, cause he did some speeches for, for AA 
and I was going to ask him to be on the podcast, but he said he's done with the AA thing. He's like, it turned out to be so judgmental. And he said that because he was drinking Kratom and they, um, and they, Wait, they were like drinking, drinking it. Yeah. Like they had Kratom, they have Kratom drinks down here. They have the Kava bars and stuff. So he was drinking Kratom and, um, and they, they just got onto him. They're like, you can't have Kratom. That's a drug. And he's like, you know, I, I was a heroin addict for, for years and, um, you know, heroin and crack. He's like, I don't think Kratom is my biggest problem. If I can stick with this, I feel like I'm fine. And they all had a big problem with him. And then he goes, he's like, and then I go to the coffee bar and I see one of the other guys there and won't even look at me because he's sitting there having a drink. So, wow. but, um, but have you tried Kratom? Um, I haven't. I, I've heard mixed reviews about it. Um, I know somebody who swears by it. I know other people who say it's a disaster and, and has all kinds of uh, terrible effects on your neurotransmitters. Um, really? Yeah, you know, I don't know one way or the other, and, and I certainly wouldn't judge anybody for whom it works. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know. It's a partial agonist to the opioid receptors and and I, I use it all the time. I um, but I do have a problem with uh, with it becoming like I'll have like withdrawals if I don't take it. So then really? I just but yeah, but it's not not nearly as bad as because I was I had a Vicodin addiction for a few years and that those withdrawals were far worse than kratom. But um, but still the kratom I, I just wean myself off. I'm actually weaning off um, right now because for the new year I'm going to do a whole sober month in January. So I just want to do just something for me. But um. But I, I do like Kratom and I think it's helped a lot. A lot of addicts it's helped because the DEA tried to outlaw it. And a lot of, especially ex, ex-veterans who have PTSD or uh, physical pain that w- they were treating with, um, you know, morphine derivative opiates switched to Kratom and they all marched on Washington, signed a petition and the DEA actually reversed the ban. So that was good. That is interesting. Have you tried uh, buprenorphine at all or methadone? I have, I've tried methadone, but not through the clinic. That was when I was young and it was uh, actually passed around as a recreational drug sometimes. Um, but I've not tried uh, suboxin, but my Vicodin addiction, um, I mean, granted, I guess it, it was kind of bad, but I, I had a, I, I just, when I decided to quit, I just quit. I went through the withdrawals and it was fine. But one of my best friends is a, he's a fentanyl addict and he lives on suboxin. That's, but, but he relapses constantly because it, um, because it does, I guess it doesn't give him the effect he really wants. But does he? How, do you know, have any idea how much Suboxone he takes? I don't. There's there's a lot of you know fentanyl is a real um, game changer, and I mean obviously nobody's studying every you know single analog, but um, it's stored in your fat cells. Uh, it, it's lipophilic, so um, you know that can wreak havoc for a very long time. And there's a lot of people out there that will tell you you know, with Suboxone uh, or, you know, buprenorphine, uh, less is more. Like nobody needs more than eight milligrams, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've been on it since 2008 and I take 20 milligrams a day and, you know, nobody's going to shame me out of that. But I, I know a lot of people who need, um, you know, 32 milligrams is the absolute ceiling dose um, in, in the sense that like that uh, it, it's match maximum saturation of your receptors. Um, and there's a lot of people out there who need 32 milligrams um, and they're being told, you know, you don't need that. And it's like, I mean, look, we all know our own bodies better than um, anybody else, but we're, you know, kind of um, led to believe that, uh, you know, anybody who uh, drug users are liars and you can't trust them and whatever. And, you know, so Mm -hmm. it's really tragic. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually, thanks for that information. I'm going to call and talk to him about that. Um, but yeah, but us knowing our own bodies better, that brings me to the that part where um, your counselor, Ron, 
he found out he never had experienced addiction himself. And, and he said his training has allowed him to understand addiction better than you as an addict. Mm -hmm. and, and that just really struck me as, as, I mean, I understand doctors that will help treat addicts who are having, hold on, hold on. Oh, hold go on. ahead. Yeah. He's not a doctor. Oh, oh, he's not. He's just, well, he's no. a counselor. No. Yeah. He's like, this is the, the entire, I mean, you know, these guys in 46 states, you don't need any kind of medical credentials to be a counselor. So, so these experts, um, they're, they're not doctors. I mean, you, you don't need to have be a high school graduate in order to, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 right, in 46 states, you don't even need to have graduated from high school in order to be a counselor. Really? So wrong. I mean, these are just people. Um, they're not speaking and, and, and their training comes from these non-medical, um, you know, approaches. So they, they, you know, will call themselves experts and you'll believe them because, you know, you're there and they're in charge, but, um, you know, they, they truly, I mean, they're not qualified to diagnose, treat, or, um, you know, uh, maintain any kind of, um, medical condition or, or mental health condition. So, and, and addiction is a medical condition. Mm-hmm. Wow. So yeah, I guess I just assume when I read counselor, I assume I, I picture someone in a medical coat and assume oh. that they're, they're they're either a doctor or a nurse no. practitioner. Wow. No, I mean, you know, and the thing about Ron that like, at, you know, at, at the time I was just so rip roaring mad that I couldn't, you know, I didn't really have any perspective on it. But I mean, you have to imagine this is a guy who, you know, grew up in somewhere in Minnesota and he needed to get a job. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of making this up and making assumptions. Um, but I know that, you know, he, he, this is what he's done all his life. So whether he got out of uh, high school and said like, I'm going to go, uh, you know, this Hazelden plays pays better than McDonald's. Like, I don't know what the you know driver was for his decision, but so he gets his job at Hazelden and then they trained him. So he's everything that I'm saying to him plays into the narrative of, um, you know, drug addicts are liars. Uh, they, they're in denial, you know, blah, blah, blah. So like, I'm telling him, you know, look, man, uh, depression is the problem. And he's like, oh, that sounds like an excuse to me. Um, you know, if I went there and, and on the other hand, though, if um, it's hard to imagine if somebody showed up there and their you know, foot got chopped off and they were prescribed uh, morphine or they were taking the morphine before it, would anybody say like, oh, well, clearly your foot got chopped off because of the morphine and you're in pain because of the morphine's causing the pain. The only way you're going to feel better is if you stop making excuses um, and you stop taking the morphine and you pray and you go to a bunch of meetings with this anonymous support group, then your foot will feel better. And it's like, you know, <laughs> pain doesn't stop when we stop taking painkillers, it gets worse. And we know that, but for whatever reason, you know, this is what these guys are taught. So like, I, I, just played into the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. This, uh, this idea that also the idea that addicts are the, the addiction is the disease. It couldn't be an underlying thing that's causing you to want to feel better. It's, it's well, right. That's an excuse. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I had this conversation with, um, at a speaking gig, uh, with a, some parents recently. And I was thinking, you know, if when I was 16, um, instead of heroin, if I started you know, running and I found that running um, was great for my depression, right? Uh, and so swap heroin with running. Like every, you know, my problems are all solved with, uh, with running, blah, blah, blah. Um, nobody's going to tell me, you know, the, you got to stop running. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're making excuses and, and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Like, you know, and don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, running and heroin are, are comparable, uh, you know, 
health-wise. Obviously, running is you know uh, infinitely better for you. But everybody had you know we all have coping mechanisms, um, and so you know like this this is what um, some people are doing to to feel better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's Johan uh, uh, Hari's book. Um... Lost connections. He talks about this about the the idea that we we look at the a building that's on fire and we and we think we can just if we blow the smoke away then the fire will go out. So, but you have to put the fire in the building out, and the smoke is the addiction. The fire is whatever is causing them to seek the drugs. Which uh, for some people it's schizophrenia, heroin, or uh, schizophrenics find heroin uh, more comforting than any antipsychotic medicine, and most of them end up homeless because they're using heroin and they're schizophrenics. And that to me is just just so awful. Yeah. I, I, I mean, addiction is a symptom, you know, people use drugs for a reason. I mean, you know, the, the, the definition of, you know, compulsive use, despite negative consequences, it's like, you know, the, the opioids, um, they're not instantly addictive. Like the compulsion to use drugs, despite negative consequences is a compulsion to kill pain. I mean, they're painkillers. Like that's why people use them. All of these, you know, I mean, my mom uh, had cancer twice. She was prescribed all kinds of opioids. She didn't uh, have a problem with it. She's a happy, well-adjusted person. You know, I'm not. Um, so, you know, I mean, yeah, it's it's absolutely a symptom. And we look at it the exact opposite. I mean, the idea that addiction would be anybody's problem, like, you know, um, nobody's problem is, uh, I, I can't stop pouring booze down my throat. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm pouring booze down my throat to drown, you know, some kind of problem. Um, mm-hmm. not speaking, personally, I got drunk once in my life, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. I've, I have used alcohol that way when, when I was younger and dealing with a lot, there was times you just drank to just forget about, forget who you were and just, and people from the outside, like some family members would be like, Oh, I just like to party. I just want to party my life away. It's like, it wasn't a party for me. It wasn't fun. No. Um, I mean, and that's, you know, it's like we lump everything together as recreational drugs and we say recreational as if fun is a problem. Um, but you know, I mean, look, I, like when they were telling me in rehab that, uh, or they told my mom that I was going to drink, you know, hand sanitizer if I got desperate enough, uh, because you know, that's what we do. We abuse whatever can be abused. And it's like, I understand why drinking, you know, uh, liquid soap is, is considered abuse, but like, you know, painkillers are there to kill pain and that's the draw. Like, I'm not so sure that there's a lot of, you know, recreational, uh, opioid use. I think everybody is using them to kill some kind of pain. It's just some of us don't have a prescription and it's illegal. Yeah, I definitely agree. And honestly, I found when, when I got into Vicodin, I had always, always, always enjoyed opiates the way they made me feel, and it, but they made me feel more level than alcohol. Alcohol had its ups and downs. You might feel really great one minute and then you don't feel, then you get mad. But opium gave me a very, you know, just calm, relaxed and it uh, does. level yeah. feeling. I mean, you know, I, um, I tried my, my lone experience with alcohol happened before I tried, um, heroin and, you know, I wanted to like it. I mean, I've, I've always been, you know, kind of jealous of, of people who like drinking because it was so horrifying for me. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't like the feeling of being intoxicated. Um, and I say that sometimes when people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? And it's, you know, I mean, look, I, I couldn't like stand up. I was throwing up. It was, I mean, it, that experience turned me off to alcohol for the rest of my life so far. Um, and I can't imagine why I would do it again, but you know, opioids, they don't like 
fuck you up like that. I mean, it, it's not, um, I mean, you can, but uh, you know, if, you, if you're taking them um, responsibly if such a thing is possible, uh, given the you know, laws, um, you know, it's, I mean, again, there's people all over the world who are prescribed powerful opioids that, you know, don't have a problem. We're not, uh, you know, thinking they're, they're, you know, they can't function and they're going to, you know, steal all your shit when you're not looking. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to think too, because we're talking alcohol versus opioids. And I was reading Michael Pollan's newest book and he talked about during prohibition that all these, uh, these groups, like one of them was like the women's Christian Alliance or whatever, whatever they were called, but they would have their symbol was the ax. And it was about cutting down the apple tree because that men would use the apples to group to, to brew ciders, hard ciders. And, but they said that their drug of choice at the time was a lot of them that was available over the counter. So they were like all anti-alcohol, alcohol is the devil. And then they would go oh, yeah. to a lot of them. So, so there's always been, even when like one drug's prohibited, the other one's available. Oh, yeah. And now we've switched basically said, well, alcohol is good to go. We're going to get all the opiates off the shelf. And I mean, it's, it's, it's cr- I mean, you know, um, opi- opium was uh, in America before, you know, uh, the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, I mean, during the Civil War, like, in the in the mid 1800s uh, until the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, opioids were the default medication for everything, um, for physical pain and you know anxiety, uh, amputation, you know whatever whatever it may be. And so at around 1900, um, one in 200 Americans were addicted to opioids. Um, smoking opium had been outlawed starting in San Francisco because, uh, you know, a bunch of white guys didn't like their, their, uh, white women sleeping with, you know, the Chinese dudes. Um, and so, you know, we ended up, um, making them available only by prescription for physical pain. And so, I mean, you know, in the alcohol, however, um, it's like the, the, (laughs) the most dangerous substance you can put in your body. I mean, you know, Opioids kill you by shutting down your central nervous system, right? I mean, that's the damage they do, and they cause constipation, and you know, there's certainly um, unwanted side effects, but they they don't turn you into, um, you know, a lying criminal, um, you know. But alcohol will shut down every organ in your body, and I mean, you know, I certainly w- would have loved death more than withdrawal at any given moment, um, you know, in heroin withdrawal, but alcohol withdrawal can actually kill you. Um, exactly. so it's, it is more, addi- no other drug is that addictive. All other drugs combined can't cause, uh, you know, can't shut down all of your organs. So, you know, alcohol, uh, we just, we accept that it's okay. And, um, you know, it's, it's infuriating. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that people who drink don't have to worry about, you know, dying every time they, uh, you know, take a sip of something. I mean, you know, or, during, or being arrested for it or. Yeah. I mean, you know, during prohibition, I mean, alcohol fatality surged during prohibition because you don't know what you're getting. And that's the danger with drugs right now. I mean, you know, the, the analogy that I um, always use is like, if I've got two pint glasses on the table, um, they're both alcohol. And one of them is, um, you know, hard seltzer, like 2% hard seltzer. And, and, and the other one is uh, methanol, right? So here's two pints of alcohol. Go ahead and drink one. If you don't know which is which, you're, you've got a 50% chance of dying. So if you ask somebody, like, would it be safer to know what's in the glass? Like, nobody in their right mind is going to tell you no. Alcohol would be much safer if, you know, it just, uh, <laughs> there was no ABV and 
and all like that. Um, and, and that's what's killing people, you know? And, and people were dying during prohibition for the same reason and people would be dying today for the same reason. I mean, you know, look, if, if, I, if I bought a bag of heroin uh, from, you know, uh, I had one, I mean, there's a, an archaic stamp on the bag is not a quality assurance statement uh, or consistency. The potency is always, you know, inconsistent. I mean, overdose is an overly potent dose. So mm-hmm. if you don't know how potent the dose is, you can't prevent overdose. And that's not the drug's fault. That's the law. Exactly. And that's that with the opioid crisis that they call it, which I have a problem with that name, because it's not a problem of the opiates aren't the problem. And that, that phrase makes it sound like it is, but it's, well, the, it's the laws. It's what? the laws. Exactly. It's the dosage yeah. problem. And everybody thinks, well, 100,000 people die from opiates. That's how horrible opiates are. So, no, that's how horrible our regulation of them is because it, opiates it don't kill people in the hospital. That's right. It's it's exactly it's it's the regulation. I mean, you know, and also um, we know, I mean, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of, of overdose fatalities uh, are from illicit drugs because the inconsistent potency. You have no idea what you're putting in your body. I mean, it's like 96 percent. Um, of, of overdose uh, is from illicit drugs. So, I mean, you know, yeah. and, and it's like, I mean, you know, my mom is kind of like a yardstick uh, of, of sentiment for, you know, America at large. Um, and the idea that like, you know, the drug war is obviously failing. Everybody knows that. Nobody can think of a single good thing to say about it. I mean, you know, look, lawmakers would be jumping up and down telling us how great it was if, there were, if they could think of anything good to say. So clearly it's, you know, a catastrophic failure. Um, and, and everybody also is aware, like when they really stop and think about it, like are legal regulated substances safer than I have no fucking idea what I'm putting in my body. I mean, obviously they are. Um, but it's like, we were, were more horrified by the idea of people using, um, legal regulated drugs safely than the idea of people dying from, from the illegal drugs. Um, and, Isn't that and I, crazy? That's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, look, fear is irrational. And this is, it's not a rational conversation. It's a, it's a conversation about fear. It's like, you know, when you ask the average person, should we legalize drugs? What they hear is, should we make meth available for babies and stick it in their jugular veins so that they get addicted, uh, you know, immediately? Um, you know, people, everybody's afraid the drug use is going to increase if, um, if we legalize and regulate drugs. And, you know, so the next question is, all right, well, um, uh, you know, is it, is it safer? Would less people die? Sure. Absolutely. You know, nobody's going to argue that. All right. So all, you know, the legalization leads to widespread use, right? Did, did you load up on, you know, beer every time you go to the gas station? Uh, you know, no, well, why not? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a bad example. All right. So then you must be totally psyched about the idea of meth and heroin being legal, right? No, why would I, you know, oh my God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that stuff. I wouldn't go near that stuff. Well, then you must know a lot of people who do. No, you know, and, and it's like, they make the argument for you. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you're, con- if you don't want to legalize drugs because you think the whole world is going to start using, and you can't name one fucking person you think is going to uh, start using these drugs, then fuck you. I mean, you're fucking killing people. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, the idea that, that we're going to, if we legalize and regulate that, we're just going to say, all right, meth's now available at Walgreens, go get some. It's not going to be like that. We have, we have a way to regulate it safely. And people that, that that's their drug that they, they need, it helps them out. They can go talk to a doctor and it's between them I and their totally doctor. Um, um, sorry. We should have drugs in drugstores the way that we have uh, alcohol in, in liquor stores. I mean, you, you mean over the counter? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't see why. 
you can walk into, I mean, you know, look, um, my wife likes, uh, you know, wine and, and champagne every now and again. We have people over who, who drink sometimes. So I go to the liquor store. I could buy all kinds of booze, no problem, that is, you know, lethal amounts of anything, um, you know, but I can't walk into the drug equivalent of that. Like, why, why not? I mean, really, why wouldn't we do that? That is a good point. And I brought that up that I know I'm a hypocrite for saying I don't think alcohol should be heavily, more heavily regulated, but I also think heroin shouldn't be as available because on a danger scale, alcohol is actually more dangerous. So um, yeah, I mean, that, that it's, it's just, I think it's just a hard pill for even me to swallow, I guess, just the idea that heroin, you just go and you buy it. But I guess, well, I mean, but if we have, I mean, I, I think what it comes down to is um, better. I mean, look, we look at the war of drugs and drug laws as if they're uh, preventative programs and they're really not like it's interdiction you know so if we had better i mean and the idea that like uh you know well you chose to stick needles in your arm and all that like, like we do the best that we can with the choices we have at the time I, I wish that i felt like i had better choices i didn't i wish that there was some kind of you know better when we talk about prevention just say no is not prevention because the least likely person to say no to a painkiller is the kid who's desperately in pain with you know, tons and tons of shame and no resources um, to take care of it. So why don't we try actual prevention um, and resources to guide people away from drugs? Uh, and if you want to use drugs, we make them we make them available. I mean, alcohol. If we're not going to restrict alcohol more and make you go to a doctor to get uh, you know whatever kind of booze you want, then it's it's hypocritical to. I mean, you know, like I don't. Um, I get the difference from one substance to the next. I mean, you know, we were just talking about that. Uh, I I can't see. I you know I I don't like stimulants. I don't see the appeal of them. I think you know I've certainly been around people who get really you know angry uh, when they're on that stuff. But if that's your thing, then you know you should be able to get that because there's bar fights and people drive into trees and all kinds of you know terrible stuff happens. We need, to, if we're going to trust you with alcohol, we've got to trust you with the other stuff and we just need better prevention programs. You know, the other thing is we spend $48 billion a year on the drug war on, on interdiction. If we were to end the drug war, uh, legalize and regulate all drugs and uh, tax and sell them like alcohol, it would be $108 billion annual net swing. That's yep. a lot of money for treatment um, and all kinds of other things. That's actually a really good point because the idea is that if, if we have the treatment available, then, and like you said, we are treat, treat us like adults. If, if you're an adult and you make the decision to go buy a bottle of alcohol, who, who's the government to say, well, I, I don't want to do alcohol. I'd rather take, you know, a Oxycontin or something like that. And that's fine. Like, you know, I mean, again, like nobody's drinking, you know, uh, vodka at seven o'clock in the morning and functioning all day. There's millions of people who who can do that with opioids. And, and I, you know, I realize we're talking about alcohol and opioids and there's all kinds of other stuff. I mean, you know, look, if somebody wants to take LSD every day, I, I, I mean, I don't really see that happening. Um, it happens with microdosing LSD and I, and I tried it and actually it worked for a while with my depression. Really? Really? Yep. I, mm -hmm. You know, that, that's funny. You should say that. Um, I, I've, I've never taken a hallucinogen. Um, I've been terrified of them since the dare assembly in fifth grade that uh, got me interested in heroin. <laughs> um, but uh you know, I, I've been following all of the uh, microdosing and, and all that. And I, I read this amazing article um, about somebody's experience with uh, with LSD when they were older. I'm, you know, I'm 45 now. Um, 
So, I mean, I, I kind of wonder what I'm missing out on. Uh, but with, with my, I mean, you didn't like hallucinate though when you were on. No, not a micro. I was taking a, a fourth of a paper hit. So I was, I felt it. It wasn't like a lot of microdoses take even a, a super small amount. I took enough to where I felt it. I felt the energy. Everything looked a little brighter, but I wasn't, I was not um, tripping or having a trip. But now I also do that. I, I do, I do a mushroom trip probably about two or three times a year. And I do mushrooms only because the LSD now is not LSD. A lot of it on the streets because of really? the war on drugs. There's yeah, there's in bomb is one of the chemicals, which is, which I've probably done because back when I was doing LSD, I didn't even know that was a thing, but I've been reading a lot about it. And I felt last what's time I did LSD, it felt weird. It didn't feel the same. What's the chemical? What did you say? What was that chemical? It's called in bomb, which is a weird name, but it's, it's, um, I think uh, I'm not exactly sure, but it's a, it's a it's one of these chemicals that they make in the, the labs in China that they are able to sell. And it's interesting because in places like Spain, they have drug testing. The government actually tests drugs because it's, it's not legal, but it's decriminalized. And because of this, there's LSD, there's MDMA. If you buy street drugs, there's 90 percent chance that they're pure because of the testing here. It's the right. opposite. That, that, right. I mean, that's that's exactly the problem. I mean, you know, there was this Sam Quinones had this article um recently i mean you know we all know what's happening with with the fentanyl analogs and i mean it it makes a lot of sense if you think about um you know the explosion of highly potent um you know lethally potent synthetic uh, opioid analogs because i mean you know look if you're in in any distribution model um if you drive a tractor trailer truck right and you can drive around uh, barrels of orange juice that you make you know 2% per barrel or these teeny tiny little things of you know gourmet orange juice with a 75% markup what are you going to what are you going to drive around in your tractor trailer you're going to pick the orange juice right so if orange juice was illegal you'd want you know you still want the the you know high value high margin um you know low volume combination so it makes perfect sense that when you're selling an illegal product you would want it to take up as little space as possible with the you know most bang for your buck. Exactly, um, it's the iron law of prohibition. Right, and it's like you know, I mean, the, the the DEA. Like, did you see their um their one pill can kill campaign that came out a few no. weeks ago? No, I mean, <laughs> like these motherfuckers. I mean, so they <clears throat> they're they're they say um, counterfeit pills have never been more. Um, uh, you know, deadly one, one pill can kill. Uh, you know, it's a massive problem, and it's it uh, started a couple of years ago. They don't mention that it happened to have um, this problem began when they restricted uh, prescription opioids um, to the absolute max. So it's like you know, it's supply and demand, and we and we know that um, the cartels. So they're blaming the cartels for the counterfeit pills, and like obviously the cartels are you know drug traffickers are are bringing them into the country, but. Would anybody be interested in buying? I have no idea what this is, and it might kill me if you could get. I know what I'm talking about. You know, the, the real, actual, pure, whatever it is that you're looking for, for cheaper. I mean, who's going to do that? Who's going to buy some, you know, toxic fentanyl um, when they can when they can buy something that they know exactly what it is for a fraction of the price? Exactly, exactly. And that's the, that's the problem. If, if people could get like, cause there's Xanax bars being sold that have fentanyl because they're, they're counterfeit. They're, they're if, killing if, people. Exactly. If people could just go to the pharmacy and say, I, I need some Xanax and they get ID'd, you're over 18, here's your Xanax. Then they're not going to yeah. go buy it from somebody and get exactly. that one. That's so ridiculous. I mean, what, I mean, that's what killed Prince and Tom Petty, both of them. The, the DEA is responsible for, I mean, 
when you read this thing, like, uh, you know, if, if you if you look up involuntary manslaughter, um, you know, it's uh, it's defined as like, you know, an act of death caused by recklessness or um, uh, death can be reasonably foreseen by, you know, uh, negligence or, you know, failing to whatever. But um, that's what they're doing. I mean, they're they know. I mean, they say in this thing, uh, the only safe drugs, the, the only safe pills are dispensed at pharmacies. So they, they're acknowledging that uh, the legal regulated opioids are the only safe pills, but they won't let you have them. And so now you've got these pills that are killing people and they can't stop them. So, you know, I, I mean, yeah, it's, what, it's, what are these guys doing? I mean, it's like, like, you know, they're in charge of a community pool and drowning deaths, uh, you know, double uh, every couple of years. And, and we're like, oh, well, we better, you know, increase your budget and tell people just say no to swimming. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's absolutely just awful. hundred thousand people over 12 months. And when they, when I read this story in the news, when that number came out and not one person, not one of these major news articles were talking about the real problem there. They were just saying that, that how bad this, the opiates are with the fentanyl crisis and all these things, but nobody's mentioning, how do we, how do we fix this? And it, it, the answer is so easy. You have to legalize and regulate. We could solve this problem. I mean, right now, like just open, make the pharmaceutical drugs available. It would it would solve the problem right now. I mean, it's you know, I remember in the um, in the nineties when uh, you know, there's always this kind of worst case scenario fear with the drug war, where it's like, uh, you know, if we if the drug war ended, um, I remember hearing uh, you know lawmakers talking about how we could there could be as many as ten thousand deaths, drug deaths every year if the drug war ended. And it's like, you know, the, the drug war is the worst case scenario. Yeah. And the idea that like, you know, people, you, you have conversations with people who intellectually understand that it's safer to use legally, legal regulated uh, drugs. They understand that that, that um, you know, overdose fatalities, there would be a hell of a lot less, you know, people die from alcohol uh, overdose, people are gonna die from, from drug overdose too. But it's, it's objectively, indisputably safer. So anybody who wants to, unless you want to make, you know, uh, alcohol and caffeine and nicotine and everything else illegal, like one of those kinds of of people, which I I would say I disagree, but, you know, if that's your thing, that's fine. Um, I I mean, you know, they're complicit in all of these deaths. I mean, it's, 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 I just don't understand like, you know, uh, we don't want people to use drugs. That's fine. If you don't want somebody to use drugs and you can't stop them from using drugs because, I mean, look, people have been using drugs longer than written language. And I think we all know that like laws uh, don't stop behavior. I mean, nobody nobody wants to go out and murder somebody and they're like, oh my God, well, murder's illegal. I guess I better not do it. You exactly. Know? I mean, yeah, so so you don't want somebody to use drugs. You you beg them you know, not to and, and they're gonna use them anyway. What do you think's gonna happen if they use, like they're gonna fucking die. Why wouldn't you want them to be safe? Like, I, I just don't understand why anybody would have a problem with that. Well, especially when the, when the reality is you anybody can buy drugs anytime they want. It's just they don't know what they're getting, but they can buy them. It's just they might kill them. So I this mean, idea that we don't want people to be able to buy them at Walgreens, but we but we know they can buy them, you know, around the corner. Yeah. And if, if like, think you know, caffeine, um, if caffeine was uh, under the same you know restrictions as, uh, you know, opioids, right? So, um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get, uh, you know, safe caffeine and 300 people were dying every day from, you know, uh, lethally, 
uh, you know, powerful caffeine, like everybody would know how to solve this problem. Nobody would want uh, caffeine to be illegal. Like, you know, everybody understands that. But when you swap caffeine with opioids, it's like, oh my God, we can't possibly do that because we see, we, we see the problems that, uh, you know, the, the overdose deaths and, and everything else that we want to pin on, the crime and the people are terrible and blah, 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 blah. You know, of course we, we lie about our drug use. I mean, you know, I, I lied because I was ashamed, not because, you know, not like you asked me what I had for breakfast and I'm not going to, you know, make up some bullshit. Like we hide the things that we're ashamed of. And so that drives so much behavior underground. I mean, it, the laws are the problem. I mean, drug laws are deadlier than, than any drug. Completely agree. I mean, and that's what drove my friend to, um, to to fentanyl was he he got addicted to the oxycotton and that that was his drug of choice and he was highly functional. I didn't even know he was ever on it. He didn't tell me he had a problem until they they cut the oxycotton supply and all of a sudden he was scrambling for what he was going to do and then he found fentanyl and I can tell it's taking a toll on him. It's not the same drug as the oxycotton which was working totally fine with him. Yeah, I mean, you know, even the the different. I mean, heroin in, in the nineties. I mean, nobody. I was able to get away with it for so long because everybody thinks it's this crazy hardcore drug and nobody can function on it. And, and the reason people think that is because people like me don't go around saying like, hello, I'm on heroin. I thought you should know because I know you think that you can't function on it, but please don't tell anybody or call the police because as you know, it's illegal and blah, blah, blah. You know, so, so you know, it just perpetuates these stereotypes. I mean, I, I had this situation at, at work when I was, um, you know, right out of college, uh, I was wearing a white button down shirt and I shot up in the bathroom, went to a meeting and there was like blood, you know, collecting on my inside of my elbow. Um, and I, I didn't see it. And one of my coworkers said, uh, you know, are you, are you bleeding? And I was like, yeah, I just shot up in the bathroom and everybody laughed. So you just were honest and they just thought it was a funny joke and you were able to yeah, keep going. Because, yeah. right. But I was the guy who got made fun of for um, being so straight laced. I, you know, I, I didn't smoke pot. I didn't drink. Um, so everybody thought I was some kind of, uh, you know, uh, goody tissues. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're sneaking off the bathroom to, to shoot heroin, you know, and it is, and you was like, say you were highly functional. I mean, there was, it didn't. Yes. And I, I remember when I was in my twenties, I was waiting tables at this restaurant with my friend and he turned, he, he had some black tar heroin and we actually got into it for I did it for probably a few months where it, was, it wasn't every day, but we would go back behind the dumpster at work and smoke heroin and then go go wait tables. And I just felt great. It gave me energy. I didn't nobody ever knew that we were doing that. And then I never got addicted. This idea that one hit and you're hooked is like, no, I, I never even had a, like a developed a withdrawal thing from it. I mean, you know, like we know that alcohol isn't a problem for like 90 something percent of people who drink, uh, but we think that drug, any drug use at all is a, a problem for 100 percent of people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. And it's not the biggest problem is where you're getting it and what you might be doing. Like now he, my buddy ended up injecting it. He ended up getting an addiction, but he got on um, uh, suboxone and then he even even quit that. But uh, but he um. He, the doctor said, he's like, well, like, you're lucky you didn't have more problems because you've been injecting garbage into your brain, your veins. And it's like, it really sucks. People have to do that. I mean, it, it's, it's horrifying. And that, that reminds me of the story you had in your book when you were taking the Darvis set um, 
from your grandparents. Uh, you took just a few. And, and I had the same experience when I had my addiction. If, if somebody like a family member, if I found out they had like uh, some Vicodin or Percocet, I would take just one or two. But this also goes against the theory of addiction. Like if you're an addict, you're taking the whole thing, you know, because you, you can't stop yourself. But you do yeah. have some self-control. I mean, there, there are people who do that and I understand that, but that's, that's the, you know, th that's the extreme minority. Um, but, you know, we make that assumption that that's what everybody is. I mean, you know, like my, if, if heroin was legal, I think anybody would describe my use as dependence, not addiction. Um, you know, and, and there is a distinction. Um, and so people who are, who, who have, you know, actual acute full-blown addiction that that's what is treated in rehab. And that's not everybody. Like that's, that's a uh, scant few of, of the people who are actually treated, but that's what, the, you know, we freak out about it. Well, oh my God, they're on drugs. We got to do something about it right now. You got to stop. Yeah. Because you have a dependence. That's, that'd be like if somebody takes their SSRI medication for depression. We don't look at them like, look, you have a problem. You take it every day. It's like, well, I need it every day. And that could be the same with an opiate. Some people need it every day. I mean, look, like al alcohol, um, it's not prescribed. There, there's no uh, medical use for it today. Opioids are. So it's like everything that we know about the, you know, biological mechanics of, of opioids and how they work. And, you know, nobody's like, oh, my God, you know, grandma, uh, she hurt her back again and she's on Oxycontin. So you got to watch out because, you know, she stole your VCR, uh, you know, like, I mean, like that, nobody, nobody has that thought. So it's like our, our perception of, we know that opioids kill pain. We know that's all they do. That's all they're prescribed for. Like that's their purpose, right? But we make the, we, we think things about illicit use that is the exact opposite of everything we know um, about legal use. And, it's, what, and what is their big problem? The big problem is they don't want people to get high. If people are enjoying the way they feel, they have a problem with this. It's we don't like that. We we moralize. I mean, you know, think about like the things that we moralize most. I mean, it's it's sex and drugs. And I understand that sex and drugs are a problem for some people. Um, but in my experience, those are the two things that feel good every time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and like those are the things that you're supposed to feel, yeah. you know, the shittiest about. Like, oh, uh, you know, like th this is immoral behavior, and, 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 and that's how puritanical roots in this country. And I can't remember who said the quote, but they said uh, puritanism is uh, is the horrifying fear that somebody somewhere is is having a good time, something like that. But that's exactly right. It's like I mean, you know, people people are using drugs to feel better. You know, I mean, and and it's like you know, well, drugs and medicine are you know, it's like it, it's it's the same substance. Um, people are just treating themselves. I mean, you know, I I um I have been meeting a lot of people who are uh, um, using meth or cocaine, and they talk about how um, you know they had ADHD. It was undiagnosed, and it worked for them. Um, you know, and and so that's why those people are attracted to that stuff. Um, people like me who are depressed that are they're attracted to opioids i mean you know we're we're killing pain mm -hmm. i agree and that's I, i've always had a problem with depression i think psychedelics have really helped me out but uh but also opiates have helped me out a lot and i think there was a time in my life when i needed them more than i do now and i, but I still use kratom so I, it's it's still technically an opiate um I, and I, I just I, like, what's, the, what's up, you know, why, why would people have a problem with that? It'd be one, you know, like you said, if all of a sudden I'm stealing my neighbor's car to, you know, whatever, none of that's happening and it doesn't happen with most people. 
and it would it wouldn't happen or it would be a lot less common if it was you know legalization and, and regulation is going to drive the price down it's going to make everybody safer the behavior uh can come out um from hiding i mean you know if people could just go out and buy heroin the way that you buy wellbutrin uh except you know you can get it on your own um i mean it's you know so many that's what's causing the problems yeah well in switzerland they, they have legal access to heroin now and they said that for heroin addicts are 55 percent less likely likely to like they shot like steal 85% less likely to steal a car and like 95% less likely for violent crime. It's, it's the numbers are there. The, the numbers are there with everything. And, you know, for me, like, you know, I didn't talk about this stuff until a couple of years ago. I mean, this was all a big secret, but my, um, you know, how I look at like my perception of, of things, this is how it's always been for me. So like, I just, I can't understand how someone can, see the the facts you know the, the numbers are there um i mean in, in you know portugal like the numbers are there for everything and people are aware of that but they're just like nah you know i don't know about that um it's like we're denying reality mm -hmm. i think a lot of it's the big drug it's like a drug war machine that we've created that doesn't want it, it to go away yeah i mean you know we're we're we know the drug war failed and we're afraid to stop it because we think People are going to, everybody's going to start using drugs, even though we know that it's safer and we don't know anybody who's going to start using drugs. Exactly. The people that are going to use them are mostly the people that are, are, are using them right now, but they're using them in a very dangerous circumstance. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's. I wanted to ask you about the time in your book, you, um, you bought the poppies, the dried poppies from that store. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Cause I just got done with uh, the Michael Pollan book I was talking about. And he talked about making the poppy tea from his yeah. garden and finding yep. out that it's actually illegal to do that. Yep. Um, it's um, a great, uh, great essay. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I was curious um, how, how you enjoyed it. Cause you said it was milder, but it lasted longer. Yeah. It was really um, nice. Uh, I mean, there, you know, the, <laughs> If you listen to the DEA, there's one kind of opium poppy in the world, and it doesn't grow in the United States. And you know that's just not true. There's many, many, many kinds of opium poppies. Um, and so I, I can't remember exactly you know where these came from. They were not pop-up or somniferum. Um, so I don't know if there's like stronger poppies. Or, I mean, I'm I know that you probably can't buy poppies uh, anywhere anymore. You can't. I mean, no. Yeah, I mean, and even you know poppy seeds were going to be outlawed. They were talking about outlawing them. Uh, um, a couple of years ago. So I, you know, loaded up on poppy seeds just in case. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, it, it, it was, I mean, it really did the trick. It lasted for a very, very long time. I mean, you know, you have to remember that like I had, you know, no tolerance at the time and hadn't had any drugs in my system in a while. So I'm sure that if I was on, you know, like a, a, a person who's on fentanyl is not going to uh, feel, you know, anything from, from poppy seeds. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if I could, uh, if I had access to that every day, like that would have been fine. It would, it was totally fine. Yeah. I think I would enjoy that. And after doing my opioid special, I was really like, I really want to get some opium and just try some opium tea. And it's just impossible to find. I mean, I'm sure if I knew, if I knew how to go online, the dark web, I could probably find it. Cause there's a person I'm reading about now that actually gets opium delivered that way, which would be awesome just to opium. have actual like, opium actual opium which i haven't seen I, I smoked when i was probably 18 years old was last time i saw that it's about 20 years ago that's interesting um i i i've, I've never i don't think i've ever smoked opium um but you know i you can 
I mean, Michael Pollan's article, like it's, you know, the DEA will tell you that you uh, need a, you know, PhD in, in horticulture and botany and right. like it's impossible. I mean, their, their website had this picture of, um, it, the caption was Afghan cavemen uh, making heroin, right? So it's like a guy stirring a, you know, rusty barrel with an ore, right? Mm-hmm. But they're telling you like, it's impossible, you know, you need a lab and a thing and you need a doctor and all this crap, a chemist. Um, you know, in order, in order to make it. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, I don't speak from experience, but uh, based on, you know, Michael Pollan's article and, and everything else that I've read and heard, it, it seems like, you know, we could also solve this problem by just letting people plant uh, poppies and, you know, making their own opium and whatever. Yes. Yeah. The rural areas that are hit so hard, their farmland, you know, make fields of poppies. Well, and it's a shame the DEA actually was funding these, you know, the Mexican government to, for their drug war, and they're burning down fields and fields of poppies, yeah. which is pushing the the cartels to just move towards fentanyl. And the DEA themselves predict yeah. that in the next ten years there won't be any heroin at all; it'll all yeah. be fentanyl. And 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 I mean, you know, they did that in Colombia with cocaine um, many years ago. I I remember reading this thing about uh, they basically like um, bribed you know farmers to stop growing coca and start growing asparagus right and they're like you're going to sell so much asparagus to the united states like you won't know what to do with yourself so and and it was true for a moment but what do you think happens when you know all of i mean not all of colombia but you know when when uh cheap when asparagus starts flooding the market it drives the price down so the dea drove all of these farmers out of business because they were making money on asparagus for five minutes um and then and then competition got so steep and there was tons and tons of asparagus. So the price went, you know, way the fuck down. Um, I mean, you know, like, what the fuck do we think we are going into other countries and telling them what to do? Yeah. And that's, unfortunately, that's been our, what our country's been doing for years. You know, all the problems south of the border. I mean, our, our governments went down there and messed with those countries over and over again. And we're, we're murdering. I mean, we, we are destroyed. Like the DEA has destroyed, so, like, it, you know, <laughs> These guys think drug users uh, belong in jail. I mean, they should all be in jail. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crazy. In 1971, when we started the drug war, right, which we've spent a trillion dollars on and, and you know, uh, millions of lives have been lost and destroyed. If we were to have lit, uh, you know, $500 billion on fire and killed a million people, we'd be ahead right now. And, and obviously legalized and regulated drugs instead. I mean, you know... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's 100%. And when Reagan started it in uh, the, this version of the drug war, and it was like 82, they said that we would be 100% drug free by 1995. That was their yeah. bold prediction. Yes. And and it was around 1995 when they were predicting uh, 10,000 people would there would be drugs would kill 10,000 people a year, if not for the drug war. And that sounded, you know, uh, like hyperbole back then. But like, you know, you can find, um, clips and speeches of the lawmakers who made those speeches back then, uh, you know, what do they have to say for themselves now? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred thousand died this year. And it's because of the drug war. I just, it's so, so frustrating that people don't see this. I have people message me on social media about when they see my podcast or like, you know, I had a friend that died from a drug overdose and it ruined my brother's life. It's like all that happened under prohibition. People don't understand this. They don't. And it's, you know, the other thing is that the, I mean, the safe injection sites and the methadone clinics, like all of these things that only exist because of what 
the dangers that drug laws create, right? So the people who don't want to legalize drugs are the same people that are telling you, we don't need, you know, I don't want a safe injection site in my neighborhood. I don't want a methadone clinic in my neighborhood. Safe injection sites in, in the history of the world, every safe injection site anywhere since the dawn of time, nobody has died. There, there's been no overdose fatalities. That's a pretty compelling number, right? Mm-hmm. And these guys are like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they're so you know, necessary. It's like, okay, well, great. And, and with methadone, it's like, um, you know, you don't want a methadone clinic in your neighborhood. I mean, I don't want a methadone clinic in my neighborhood either um, because it can get it at the fucking pharmacy. Like if a doctor prescribes methadone for somebody's knee pain, they can fill it at the, at the pharmacy. If I'm prescribed methadone for uh, opioid addiction, I have to go to a fucking clinic every day and pee in a cup. Like, you know, you can get uh, toxic fentanyl delivered to your house in under 24 hours, um, you know, but but you need to go to a methadone clinic every day. I mean, you know, single parents, people who, who can't go to work late or can't leave their house at five o'clock in the morning, like there's nothing normal about that kind of life. Um, no, and, and the, the rules that they have and the, the way that they make you, these people feel at the clinics. My buddy dated a girl that was a heroin addict and he would every morning drive her to the clinic at like, she had to be there before 9am where they closed the doors on her and said there was a few mornings they overslept and she would like, I need you to take me down to this, this other neighborhood then I got to get something else. And why are they closing the doors at 9am on these people? It, and you know, the, the other, like I, um, I call methadone clinics. I mean, I haven't lately, but uh, like every, every few months I would just kind of call um, random clinics around the country and find out, you know, how long is the wait list and blah, blah, blah. I signed up for um, a couple of wait lists just to see what would happen. I'm on a wait list now that I've been on for 17 or 18 months and another wow. one that I've been on for 16 months. I mean, you know, and uh, and the idea of like take-homes, I mean, I always ask the question of like, you know, I mean, I, I, I lay out my um, situation minus the you know, buprenorphine, but it, it's basically like, you know, I've got two kids. I need to get them ready for school. I, I have things to do and obligations and, you know, I'm a responsible parent. Um, I, I just, I can't get to your clinic every day. I can promise you that I'm not going to use other drugs. And if you want to come here, I will pee in a cup, you know, every five minutes if you like. Um, but I can't get there. Can you help me out? Because I'm going to die if you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about dying and, you know, fentanyl is so bad, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they're like, yeah, no, you know, we can't help you out. It's, uh, you know, whatever. And it's like, these guys are, um, you know, they're, they're contributing to the problem. They are. Yeah. It's the, the laws are driving the stigma and it's the stigma and laws that, um, you know, that's what makes life unmanageable. That's what is destroying lives and killing people right now. It is. And it's, I guess it goes back to the idea. They don't want people to get high, but I mean, if, if heroin, what is Dr. Carl Hart said, he's like, who would have thought heroin's a good cure for her, or a good, not cure, but um, it is the cure. Yeah. But for heroin addicts, it, it treats them. It's a good treatment for heroin addiction is yeah, giving them heroin. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there were a bunch of studies uh, in the 1914, the Harrison Act that made uh, opioids illegal except by prescription for physical pain. Um, and there were a lot of doctors who, you know, addiction was thought to be an incurable moral defect at the time, but there were a lot of doctors who were sympathetic. So they opened up, uh, you know, heroin clinics, uh, for lack of a better description. And they, they found, you know, it was very successful. It worked, obviously it worked. Um, you know, but then those guys started getting shut down and sent to jail and, and whatever. And it's like, I mean, you know, some compassion would, I mean, it's like, don't, you, if you want to hate something, why don't you hate the problems 
or, or the, the things that drive people to use drugs and the problems that the laws create, like don't need drug users. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, and the, there's, uh, I was just talking to Claire, uh, Claire Zagorski, and she said that, you know, they have these safe injection sites in Texas, but they're all illegal. So right. you have people putting their jobs and careers on the line and potential jail time to, to help people because they know it's going to save lives. I mean, we don't want people to, I mean, look, every life-saving harm re reducing resource is, uh, you know, restricted and criminalized and stigmatized and, uh, and everybody knows that we can't stop uh, fentanyl from, you know, pouring in. So as long as the poison is easier to get than uh, the antidote, I mean, I don't know who we're kidding here. Yeah. And you just said the word harm reduction. I didn't realize that harm reduction is like a, a taboo word in, in, with, in politics and stuff. Like she said, she's told, don't use the word harm reduction when you give this speech or when you give this talk. How, the word harm reduction is this really, really bizarre. It, it, it is. And the thing that's so uh, horrifying about the attitude for, you know, for, for me at least is like, nobody has a problem with the idea of reducing harm, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, bike helmets, seatbelts, those little plastic doodads that you put in uh, electrical sockets so, you know, babies don't electrocute themselves and so forth. Like everybody understands the purpose of gun locks, uh, you know, no problem. But nobody, not nobody, the idea of reducing harm for drug users, it's like, why would we do that? Like, that's just crazy. We're enabling and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I mean, you know, I put those things in my electrical sockets when my uh, kids were babies and it wasn't to encourage um, them to electrocute themselves. It was to reduce harm. It was, you know, mm -hmm. uh, preventative. I mean, you know, it's like, so these concepts, uh, I mean, if laws are meant to protect us and lawmakers job is to make laws, um, it's really hard to imagine how any lawmaker can have a problem with the idea of reducing harm. It is, it is an idea that we're enabling them if we make it safer and easier for them to access drugs. But it's like, what are we enabling? them to self-medicate something like depression or something they're going through. We're enabling them to do it safer. We're, we're I mean, we're enabling them to not die. Yeah. And, and, and that like, that needs to be more important than this crazy fucking approach to prevention that we think we're doing. As long as we, you know, it's like people want to prevent drug use and they're not even thinking that like, uh, they're 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 rejecting the solutions to this problem um, by doing so. You know, no, we don't want a safe supply of drugs like that. That would be crazy. Well, it it would solve the like massive fucking problem of people dying all the time. Yeah, but more people might use drugs. We you know we can't we can't have that. Um, and none of these people. It's like, do, do you, well, how is this going to uh, end without a safe supply of drugs? People are dying from the illicit drugs, and you know why. So, what kind of solution do you propose here? Like what's working? Has anything worked? No. Exactly, and we can look at other countries and see what is working, but we just re refuse to do that. I don't... No, people might use drugs. People might also not die. How about that? Yeah, well, and people are using drugs. Clearly, I prohibition mean, is not stopping them from doing it. It's, it's a right. I mean, clearly, clearly, if the drug war had uh, you know been a preventative, uh, preventing drug use, then nobody would be on drugs right now. Yep. We wouldn't have had 100,000 people dead either. All those deaths are on the DEA's hands and the it, drug war's hands. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, yeah. Reminds me of that commercial that the tobacco, anti-tobacco campaign where they started dropping body bags in front of the tobacco buildings. I feel like we should do that at the DEA. 
I mean, we should, you know, it's like, it's a very simple equation. Make drugs safer, less people will die. Don't make drugs safer, more people will die. Like pick one, you know? Yeah. It's not, when, when you start talking about like, oh, well, if we make drugs safer and we make them available, people are going to use them, blah, blah, blah. No, it's this. Do you want more people to die or do you want less people to die? Do you think drugs would be safer if they were safer in a safe supply of legal regulated drugs? I mean, you know, this is this is clearly uh, the most dangerous that it could possibly be in, in any form. Like nothing is uh, more dangerous when it's legal and regulated, like nothing, you know, mm-hmm. we we have these like, you know, there's some cheeses that are illegal uh, in, in the United States because of uh, I was reading about some Sardinian cheese that has like maggots in it and they perforate your organs or something like that. And it's like, you know, would you want to just if, if you could just buy your cheese and there were maggots in it that perforated your organs, do you feel safer knowing cheese is regulated and you know so forth? Like, I mean, yeah. you know, everybody, it's like, I, I find in these conversations because, because fear is irrational, it's not a rational conversation, you really have to take drugs out of the conversation and you have to swap out something else, you know, um, in, in the, you know, the cheese or the caffeine or, you know, any, any kind of substitute, people can actually, uh, you know, have that kind of conversation who couldn't otherwise when, when it's about drugs. Yeah, I agree because this, the, the drug campaign or the anti-drug propaganda is just really brainwashed people. People just they, decades and decades of, and I was talking about it last week we, that uh, me and Claire were talking about, we think that actually cannabis might end up being a gateway into opening people's mind about the drug propaganda and changing people's minds. Cause you have a lot of elderly people that are now going and getting their marijuana prescriptions because they actually are benefiting from the drug and they're realizing they've been lied to. You, you, yes. I mean, the, the other thing that I, I mean, I'm seeing in my, you know, one horse town is um, there was uh, the idea of, you know, should we have a pot store in town or a you know, dispensary, whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like a, a town hall meeting or, uh, a, a bunch of them, I guess. And people were saying like, we can't do that. Kids are going to, you know, like it, the usual fear of mm-hmm. uh, what people think without really thinking about it. And it's like, we have three liquor stores in this town. If we didn't have three liquor stores in this town, do you think nobody would drink? Yeah. Would they go someplace else to get alcohol or would they be like, well, shit, I guess I'm not drinking because there's no liquor store in the fucking town. You know? Exactly. And also, which drug do you think is probably easier for a teenager to get? It's probably going to be the cannabis that's sold illegally versus the liquor sold at the store. Well, right. But also, I mean, you know, my daughter, she's going to be 16 tomorrow. So she's at that age where, you know, kids are starting to experiment. And I know a lot of parents who are like, I'm, I'm you know, I'm worried about pot, you know, just because it's legal now, you know, it's still a drug and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? I would be fucking ecstatic if Ruby never went near alcohol and and only smoke pot i, I mean i hope that. that she doesn't do anything but i know that i can't stop her and i'm and i'm aware that if she had to pick one i i know which one is safer you know nobody's ever died of a pot overdose um yeah you know it's not physically addictive i mean not causing cirrhosis of the liver or heart disease yeah. or cancer yeah. i mean i don't know maybe possibly lung cancer but anyway it's it's definitely a much safer drug and i i always i find when I'm, when I'm in a better place in my life I'm not drinking much and I'm smoking more pot, but for me, smoking more pot means, you know, I, I, a few hits in the morning to get, to get up and get moving, go to the gym. It makes my, oh my day a little better. <laughs> I, I, um, 
you know, I was, I was never a big pothead. I smoked pot, uh, it's gotta be like 15 years ago. Um, it was the last time. And it, I mean, it was like, I was kind of excited about it. Like we're gonna watch Cheech and Chong and, you know, get some Twinkies or whatever. And, and I just, I fell asleep. I took like one hit and fell asleep. So the, you know, I mean, the idea of, of, of waking up and, and smoking pot, like I can't even imagine. Um, yeah, it does everybody differently. I have friends that, a friend that wakes up and smokes a whole joint. And then an hour later, he smokes another one. And that's just how he yeah. chooses to live I mean, his life. I, but if I, you do if that I, every day, it's, I mean, like my friends in college used to say, um, you know, I, I, I smoked pot a few times in college. And I remember this guy, Josh, saying, um, you get too fucked up and you get fucked up too fast because you don't do it every day. If you did it every day, this wouldn't happen. You got to you know, <laughs> train for it. Got to power through. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think Sorry. building up a tolerance like that just ends up costing a lot of money. To me, it's like keep my tolerance low, then I only have to take two or three hits and I'm good to go. Yeah, I mean, the the, the pricing though, like um, I live in New York and uh, it's legal here now, but apparently the like, um, you know, really uh, pot that people actually like to smoke is um, that like actually gets you stoned is uh, that you still can't, you know, buy it over the counter or whatever. But um, my the gas station that I go to had pot um a couple of months ago and, and i saw it and i was like holy shit i've got to buy this pot like you know how could i not it's in a plastic thing it's like sealed with plastic like this is you know how could i not do this um i had no intention of smoking it and i haven't uh but you know it seemed like the right thing to do and it's like it looks like it's like thousands of dollars worth of you know pot from 1992 in there um yeah. but you know it's it's so much cheaper and it's obviously safer and i don't know i uh, i try i tried to give it to a guy i know who uh is a big pot smoker and he said oh no it's delta 10 that's um that's not you know i i don't i don't go near that stuff because it doesn't do anything to you oh it's delta eight. Oh, delta eight yeah that's what they sell at the gas station that's what i was thinking and honestly delta eight didn't do much for me either but i've heard they've been making it they've been growing it stronger because it's legal in most places with that that haven't even um, legalized cannabis it can sell delta eight legally i think texas just tr is trying to outlaw it but yeah i mean you know the other the other thing that people don't think about is pot um you know people used to say uh you know the, in in the 90s it was like well this isn't like the pot in the 60s and i don't know what they're you know saying today but um it gets stronger and more potent because it's driven underground so they have to make it stronger so that it's more concentrated i mean it's the same thing with with the uh, opioids you know the, the fentanyl gives rise to fentanyl and yep. with, um, you know i mean i i feel like the, the dea like invited uh people to to start trafficking uh cocaine and heroin when they when they put pot in the same schedule um as cocaine and heroin because you know again if you're if you're smuggling drugs do you want to have the small uh, thing that doesn't have a smell or, you know, a giant bushels of, of stinky pot, uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Especially if they're the same and they're the same charge, if you get caught. Yeah. And the, and the weight, I mean, you know, like, come on, you've got a billion pounds of pot. That's not going to harm anybody. And you're, and you're going to be in jail for the same, um, you know, it's the same kind of crime as, uh, as if you had that exact weight in heroin. And I yeah. think heroin is probably, you know, a bajillion times more valuable uh, than yeah. than pot. So that's that's true. The DA definitely, and now they they basically they need the drugs to continue to come in because they need to be able to keep fighting them. So the, the DA, if you think about it, they never ever had a motive to to win the drug war because no, then they, they wouldn't exist. They, no, they they 
they're out of business if they drive yeah. the cartels out of business. I mean, you know, they absolutely need them. Um, they, they would have nothing to do with themselves all day. I mean, you know, and, and that's why, like, it's a taxpayer funded program that's driven by fear. So they love, you know, they're not in a hurry to walk back the, uh, you know, fentanyl exposure uh, lies that they've been spreading. I mean, you know, look, everybody has seen, uh, you know, cops in like warehouses full of, of uh, you know, cocaine and heroin. And, you know, nobody thinks like, oh, my God, uh, you better get out of the warehouse, you're going to die. And everybody knows that people are using um, illicit fentanyl and, and dying, but no drug users are dying from touching illicit fentanyl or breathing it. And, you know, everybody knows that uh, drug users aren't exactly, you know, using drugs in hazmat suits. So the mm -hmm. idea that like you can breathe in a little bit of, of fentanyl, a cop can, and he'll die, um, you know, but drug users are handling the shit all the time and it's, it's not a problem. Um, yeah and that's i was just talking about that in the last podcast where they, there's videos of cops like uh starting to pass out because of the fentanyl that they that they may have touched and that's why they're wearing gloves and what it is is they're having a panic attack because they, they are yeah, and, yes and but but that you know the problem with that is that like fentanyl exposure isn't toxic and it's certainly not lethal but it is for drug users because first responders who hesitate because they believe that bullshit it's that seconds of hesitation that uh you know that's the life and death difference for somebody for an od victim exactly and on, on claire's podcast drug futurisms they had a, a guy a doctor on there that said he went to one of the hospitals and they had towels under the door and had somebody sealed who was overdosing sealed in a room and they weren't helping him because they were worried it was fentanyl yeah like, like I, this is because of the misinformation yes it, it I, I offered um to uh uh swim in a pool of, of illicit fentanyl or, or, you know, sit in a bathtub or, you know, breathe in whatever, like, uh, you know, to, to disprove this myth, but um, I couldn't find any cops who were willing to take me up on it, but. Um, they give you a bathtub full of fentanyl. <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's just, it's like, it's common sense. Like you can, you can touch all the other opioids, you know, no problem, but this stuff, which is, you know, clearly uh, lethal when injected, um, you know, smoked or snorted that that's how fentanyl exposure uh, can kill you. And, and in, you know, with the first responder hesitation, I mean, at the start of COVID um, Texas, and I think it was Indiana uh, had a rule that um, you couldn't uh, you, you couldn't like basically help an overdose victim. You couldn't give them Narcan, um, you know, because it's COVID and, uh, and also there could be fentanyl on them and, you know, all these other ridiculous reasons. And it's like, I mean, the bullshit that these guys believe, like the, the DEA needs to be uh, completely disavowing that information and, um, and and apologizing for it, but they're not, you know? And and the, the, the cops that keep pushing it, like, I mean, I'm sure that some of it is done innocently, but at this point, like you really, I mean, there's no reason that, that any uh, first responder or cop should not be aware of the truth. And they would be if the DEA put out a bulletin that said, hey, here's the fact. Yeah. Yeah, that, that definitely should be put out there. I mean, if yeah. if we're letting people die because we're t scared of something, of basically scared of the boogeyman. I mean, this is not yeah. it's not a real well, they thing. They need the fear. They they need the fear. I mean, look, the drug war is so fucking unpopular. So the idea that like you know we've got this new bad guy in town and it's fentanyl and it's so bad that you could you know 
brush up against somebody who uses fentanyl and you're going to die. Like that's some scary shit that, that uh, you know, makes taxpayers feel more comfortable about fighting the war on drugs. Um, so, you know, there's nothing, I mean, look, every, every drug that's outlawed in America, there's some kind of racial catalyst, racist catalyst uh, for it being outlawed. We know that, I mean, it, there's, there's so much lies and bullshit that people just believe. Um, and, and, and the DEA and lawmakers, I mean, I have to imagine that, that there's not a lawmaker in, in the country that doesn't know this stuff. It's true. I mean, and the drug war was started this way, right? Harry Anslinger, he hated jazz music because he was he was just a horrible racist, and he hated Billie Holiday. She was singing that song "Strange Fruit," uh, which he which told she was told to stop singing. So he went after her for heroin. He went after the jazz people for cannabis, and he was on record. He said cannabis is the most, or he said marijuana. He said marijuana yeah. is the most violence causing drug in yeah. the history of man. Well, but right, but the, the marijuana he wanted to go after the Mexicans. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that is true. The um... I mean, there's a great quote uh, from um, uh, Erlinger, uh, Nixon's, um, mm -hmm. Nixon's cabinet, who was talking about, um, you know, the racial motives for the drug war. Um, you know, so that these these aren't like, you know, I, I have these conversations with people and I always say like, I'm, you know, I'm not giving you like my opinions or like some whacked out conspiracy theory that I read on some like bullshit website. Like these are recorded facts. You know, this was actually said. Um, this is what actually drove these drug laws. This is what actually started, uh, you know, led, led to the drug war. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and if you look at what's been going on over the past 50 years and the fact that there's not a shred of data the drug war supporters can point to that says um, this is working. Here's a positive, a single fucking positive benefit. Like there's not one thing that they can say the drug war has improved. And so, you know, what, what is very discouraging for me sometimes is the idea that like these guys literally do not have a single reason to justify what's going on and we'll, you know, and, and because it's fear. So we'll never have enough reasons and facts to convince them. Yeah. You know, I mean, we like, we're screaming reasons all the time. I, I, I feel like it's such an emotional conversation. It's not rational. Um, and it's emotional for both sides. I mean, you know, those who are like people like us, um, we want it, you know, health and safety. Like that's, that's, you know, first and foremost. Um, so I feel like in, instead of trying to convince them that everything will be okay, what we really should be doing is, is exposing um, you know, they're just cold heartedness. You know, you, you guys are letting people die. You want yeah. people to die, you know? That's true. And it's, it's really hard too, because my, my biggest uh, hurdle I'm having to, is to reach the conservatives because I, we need them. I have to have them on our side on this or we're going to lose the vote, but they're, they're so hard that like instead, I don't know why they're so against it either. It doesn't really make sense, but if you look at it, so we have to talk about the financial aspects of it, the money that'll be saved and made from just from ending this drug war, because that matters to them, the financial aspect. I, I and Right. Like, you know, when you think about on paper, who, what kind of person uh, is in favor of the drug war? Like, you got all these people that are saying, like, all these drug programs cost all this money. And, you know, why should I have to pay for it? They don't pay for my insulin, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, all right. So, I mean, you know, New Jersey, when when they legalized pot, um, there was some crazy statistic about 
how much money is spent, just like prosecuting, um, you know, simple possession charges for, for pot. So like if, if you say that, you know, the average conservative who likes saving money, um, all right, so we spend $48 billion a year on interdiction that's obviously doing nothing and you don't like that. So we can have, you know, this positive net swing factor. You would never have a single dollar of taxpayer money going toward anything. You'd actually have the surplus. So you like that. You know, mm -hmm. if drug users are such terrible people and you want them to die anyway, then why not just give them all the drugs they want, uh, you know, and, and, and let us kill ourselves. Um, you know, you want to get rid of the cartels? No problem. I mean, you know, everybody's problems would be solved with legalization and, and regulation. All the, all the things, like basically any argument for the drug war is, is a more effective argument against the drug war. Yep, I agree. And the homeless problem would, would start to, you know, we could start solving some of that. And that, that's what's happened in countries that have legalized. The homeless, yeah. this homelessness goes down, the parks get cleaned up, there's no syringes laying around. I mean, everything, because Switzerland was, is a very conservative country, and they were a lot of, really against the new drug laws until they saw how it worked. Now they're all for it. I mean, the, the idea of, uh, of syringes being criminalized, you know, we have this idea that like, oh my God, you know, if, if they're, if they're, uh, if you can get them, then, you know, everybody's going to start using drugs. It's like, if that was true, I mean, look, nobody starts shooting up drugs or starts using drugs because clean needles are available. Nobody stops using drugs because clean needles aren't available. If it was true that clean needles, uh, you know, led to drug use, then every hospital would be full of people who are, uh, you know, every doctor and nurse and so forth would be would be shooting up drugs. I mean, so, you know, it's like we we can debunk like almost 100% of these ridiculous myths just by, you know, simple common sense, uh, but we choose not to. I mean, you know, clean needles stop the spread of disease. Like mm -hmm. that's the point. They save lives. That, that's what they do. They don't do anything else. I agree. And I mean, also, you know, look at the reasons people are shooting up, like, like this idea, like, so if you look what happened in Vietnam, so like a super high percentage of uh, the soldiers came back as heroin addicts and 90% of them quit using when they got back and they had access to it. So, right. so it, the idea that people are using, they're using in places that are economically devastated. These are people that, you know, had a lot of problems with their home or whatever, whatever, whatever caused them to seek out these drugs. So let's help, help them do it safely while they're going through what they're going through. And a lot of them will not be on whatever drug they choose to use the rest of their life. Some of them will. But well, right. And I mean, you know, the thing about the, the Vietnam, I mean, you know, these, there was so much trauma going on there and, and so, you know, so much emotional pain, so much physical pain. I mean, you know, we saw the same thing during the civil war. I mean, you know, it was, it was millions of doses of, um, you know, laudanum and, and other kinds of opioids that were, uh, you know, given out during the civil war. Like war, a war is the kind of place where, um, you know, that would breed that kind of, uh, that, would, that would, you know, people would start using, um, you know, to dull the pain. Mm -hmm. So that makes perfect sense. And then you come back and you're safe and, you know, your, your injuries heal. You know, I don't need this stuff anymore. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, it's, it's like in Hazelden when I, you know, tried to explain to them, you know, look, I wouldn't need the heroin if the depression wasn't a problem. And I, I really, you know, I, I wouldn't have. And they're like, no, 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 addiction is the problem. And it's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this was a massive fucking problem before I tried heroin. Um, and I... Uh, you know, pursued heroin because of this problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. People that are happy with their lives aren't like, well, I, I just want to try heroin just for the hell of it. Like people that want these drugs are people that are dealing with something that they need help with and they find comfort 
honestly, yeah. opiates are, are very comforting for a mind that's going through, you know, depression. I, I mean, it's really, really helped me out in the past. Yeah. They, I mean, look, they kill pain. Like everybody, if, if, if you have hip replacement surgery, nobody's like, well, you're, you know, snap out of that pain. Uh, it's an excuse to use opioids. Like we, you know, Hey, you need opioids. This is exactly what they're for. And it's like, right, this is what they're for. They're for killing pain. It work, you know, if it, if it work, if that's what somebody wants to do to kill their pain, um, you know, who are you to, to tell them not to? Exactly. Well, and what's sad though, with the whole anti-opioid movement is actually there now are telling some pain patients that it's in their head and that they need to oh, just yeah. med- meditate or do yoga. And uh, yeah. Carolyn, her book, she, she has a, a degenerative spine disease and she takes uh, tramadol every day. And she worries all the time that they're going to cut her off of her medication and tell her that, you know, it's all in her head or, or that she can, yeah. you know, yeah. which is ridiculous. Like, why can't cool. somebody take something that's working for them? I mean, yeah, and that kind of anxiety is, uh, you know, every every drug user experiences, I mean, every, you know, legal drug user experiences that. Um, it, it's horrifying. I mean, we're hearing stories all the time about hospice patients being denied painkillers. Like, these people are fucking dying. Yep. You know, make them comfortable. Like, what the fuck is wrong? With, you know, and, and, and the moral judgment on this stuff, like, these guys, that's the moral, the moral failure is not comforting somebody who's dying. The moral failure is letting drug users die in the street instead of making drugs safer. Like that's fucking immoral. Mm-hmm. I agree. That, that's what you said in your book. Drug use isn't a moral failure. The punitive drug policy is. It's totally true. Definitely. Um, it's probably a good place to wrap this up. That, that's the you know what this podcast is all about. But before I let you go, is there, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get into? Um, I mean, there's probably a million things, but I, I think we covered some pretty good ground. Um, well, we'll tell people to read your book. It's a great book, The Weight of Air. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I should plug the book. Um, yeah, please, please read the book. Um, yeah, it really is a good book. It's one of those books I couldn't put down. Like I, I finished it so fast because you just have a really good way of telling a story, but also with that's you know a lot of powerful information and, and can make people see addiction under a different light. I think it's important. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I hope uh, I hope more people will check it out. Um, if you want to get more information about the book or me, uh, my website is davidposes.com. Uh, you can get the book at any bookstore online or um, in person. I'm David the Kick on Twitter. Uh, all of my other social media uh, handles are on my website. But um, you know, please reach out anytime. I respond to everybody. Um, and uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Great to meet you. Yeah. Thank you so much. So good to talk to you. Really. Thank you for being on this podcast. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Let's do it again soon. All right. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Have a good day. You too. All right. Bye. bye. All right. Peace, Nicks. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And if you like what I'm doing, go on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Peace on Drugs. And if you want to subscribe to our newsletter, go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to let Twiggy Branches take us on out. Are you my doctor? Are you my dealer?